first of all, before we talk about the lens, I mean, what, why do you feel entrepreneurship is so important? skills of an entrepreneur uh, or the skills of an entrepreneur are really needed in organizations at any times but particularly now so an ability so what do entrepreneurs do they spot problems they design solutions they go test those solutions they listen to the feedback from customers or from people who are benefiting from those ideas and then they iterate they change and they scale doing that inside an organization is crucially important um, it helps our organisations to be more sustainable, it helps them to deliver better services um, and it means that people are genuinely more engaged, they're able to bring more of themselves to work um, and they're able to, to, to use the insight that they've got to much better effect. Really happy today to be joined by Steve McCready, who's founder and CEO of The Lens. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Peter. It's lovely to be here. I'd love to hear more about you before we talk about work. I mean, what led you here in the first place? Um, a long and convoluted journey, a bit like a mountain journey, I suppose. Um, I worked in the charity and the third sector for many, many years, um, and I uh, grew into a business development role and I had a senior leadership role in a large children's charity and um, ultimately was executive director in that large organisation, um, but was always driven by a hunger and a passion for innovation and for change. Um, I've learned lots and lots of different things, um, qualified in lots of different things, um, and it's that patchwork of experiences, I think, that's particularly relevant to supporting entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. <laughs> If we just talk about the lens, I think you launched it about five years ago, but if you could answer this question in two ways, one professionally, but also if, if you wish personally, what actually triggered you to launch the lens? Professionally first, um, I could see um, in my role as director of business development, I was working with 45 different service managers who were highly skilled and been able to run their particular service. Yet I could also see that they were working with people who had the most amazing ideas about how to improve things, but they didn't always have the skills and the, and, and the abilities to get those ideas um, into action, um, to be able to translate that insight into testable, replicable models that we could, we could work with. So I was frustrated because I wanted them to, to have those skills to complement all of their other existing skills. Um, and I wanted to find a way of doing that. And I built the prototype of the lens inside the organization firstly, as a way that harnessed people's motivation firstly, and that, that led them to learn the skills. And we'll maybe chat more about that when we get into some examples of, of, of entrepreneurs in, in the future. So my professional motivation was a way to harness that insight, that intelligence, and to make services better for people. Personally, um, I had a year as uh, acting chief exec in a large organisation with, you know, £16 million turnover, 500 staff, etc, etc. 
Um, uh, and my career had always kind of like pointed me in that kind of direction, if you like. That's where I, I thought I wanted to be. Yet when I got there, I found I was frustrated. I wasn't able to use the creativity that actually drives me and brings me joy and, and, uh, and excitement. And therefore, I decided to, to step out into a completely new role to set up the lens from scratch when it was just me uh, uh, in 2015. Um, and to, to take a very different path. And it's been fantastic. Nice. I mean, if you look back now, just on the last five years, has it turned out to be what you expected? Much bigger and, and, and bolder. Actually, uh, I'm always pretty bold and ambitious. Uh, I think I knew I had enough support from the Scottish Government, who were enormously helpful and supportive in that first year, um, who uh, I had a, had a meeting with the Deputy First Minister of Scotland, who had backed the idea, who backed me and said, here's a year's funding, go and try it. So I mm -hmm. knew that I had something to try. Um, we have now supported many hundreds of entrepreneurs, secure 1.5 million pounds worth of investment in ideas that are in the charity and the public sector and are improving lives and making those organizations more effective. So if we could just dig deeper into what the lens is, I mean, what's your vision, your mission, but also how do you actually deliver your services? We want to help organisations to harness the creativity, the insight and the imagination that is absolutely um, spread throughout their organisation. Um, and sometimes that just goes untouched. Um, we've all seen ideas that have been lying dormant for years um, that, that people think, if only we could, if only we could. Yeah. So we want help those organisations to harness that creativity, but more importantly, we want them to help build the skills in individuals that they can do that repeatedly so that people have the individual skills to be able to turn those ideas into action. And how do we do that? Yeah. We do that through a range of different programmes. Um, our main programme, our flagship organisational change programme, works with big organisations and, and we work with senior leaders initially and we create with them an investment fund uh, a set of criteria, for example, in one organisation we work with, Alzheimer's Scotland, their mission is to make sure that no one faces dementia alone. So we were able to say across the organisation, if you have an idea that helps make sure that no one faces dementia alone, there's an investment fund here that you can come and pitch to, to turn your ideas into action. If you step forward with your idea, we'll support you with the very best quality training to help you to develop your idea and to help to, to present it as an investment ready proposition. And crucially, the people who decide who uh, gets investment will also be frontline staff. So we build a mandate with senior leaders, we create a practical process that people can get investment and we provide development opportunities for staff from the front line to be able to develop those ideas and to decide which ones are implemented. You know, I'm going to come back to a couple of those uh, workshops that you run in a moment. But before I do, I, I remember something now that I heard from you a while back. So my son, he loves monster trucks, right? And one of those monster trucks is called the Gravedigger. And now I remember that you told me about a story about a Gravedigger that you worked with, who you helped with, right? Do you want to share that story a little bit? Yeah, his name's Tam, uh, Tam Rennie. So we work with Stirling Council uh, and Tam Rennie um, is a, uh, he would tell you, I'm a grave digger. Now his job title is cemetery supervisor. So he's right. a, 
bit more than a grave digger. But Tam could see it firsthand, literally at firsthand, um, the effects of funeral poverty. Um, he could see people getting into significant amounts of debt simply in order to give their loved ones a dignified farewell. And he wanted to do something about it. But he'd always been frustrated. He could see there was a better way of doing it, but he couldn't quite get to that. When we worked with Stirling Council, he then had the opportunity. He submitted an idea initially to the Lens, and he was persuaded and cajoled by some of his friends to do so. And Tam developed the most fantastic, innovative, different way to provide affordable funerals. Mm. Um, and that service is now available through Stirling Council. Um, he worked really hard through the workshops, developed a whole range of, uh, of additional skills. One of the most astute, skilled business people that I've met, uh, developed new partnerships and slashed the cost of a funeral from an average cost of £4,000 to £1,800. Wow. So it means that people in Stirling Council are now able to get access to a dignified, low-cost funeral to be able to give their loved ones a send-off and not get into funeral poverty. So, okay, that, that's, I mean, what a story. And, and that is a nice segue into just talking about two of your workshops. So one is storytelling, I believe, and the other ones is it's Lens Labs. So I, can you just elaborate on what you do in those? So we've been working now for five years. We've worked with many, many organizations. We've worked with hundreds of, of thousands of entrepreneurs uh, and leaders. So we know what works. Our labs are small, bite-sized chunks of our proven methodology. So they're an easily accessible way to learn more about what we do, to gain some particular skills on a, on a particular segment of focus. That might be around creative problem solving, for example. It could be around resilience. Um, uh, it, it could be around decision making. And so labs are an easily accessible, uh, free way to find out more about what we do. Um, storytelling is probably the most effective tool. It's called business storytelling. Um, but it's probably one of the most effective tools that we equip people with. If I told you that 300 years elapsed between people discovering that a really simple solution could prevent a huge amount of unnecessary suffering, you'd say, 300 years? Why was that? And the story there is that Vasco da Gama first discovered that citrus fruit, but lime and lemon, could prevent scurvy a terrible disease that caused huge amounts of suffering and actually lots of fatalities. It was 300 years before that information was routinely put into practice by um, um, uh, seafarers uh, at the time. So having a good idea is not enough. We need to have a way of telling people about our idea in a really compelling and engaging and memorable way and in a way that gets people to make decisions. And that's what business storytelling does. So our business storytelling labs are one of the best things that you can do to invest in your own capability to persuade people about the value of your ideas. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, when it's also an education and teaching when you're in front of a class. You know, if you could tell what you're going to say with, with a story, bring them in. I mean, you had a hook right there with a 300 year uh, as a question. You framed it as a question and then you tell the story and then deliver the message as well and the core teaching uh, moment as well. And, you know, in the world of public health that I'm in as well, um, you know, we often 
try to convey messages, health promoting messages, ways to look after your own health and well-being. And that's what I'm doing here as well with entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs. And, you know, it's, it's often difficult to get your message out there. But one of my friends um, decided to steer away. So she trained as a medic in Cambridge. Um, we met and we were colleagues for two years in the States at the Centers for Disease Control. And then instead of going out and becoming the public health doctor that she could be, she actually is still a public health physician, but the way she did it was trained in journalism, trained in storytelling, and now she tells stories for places like CNN and, and others, and she teaches at Stanford as well on health communication. So it's so powerful. And in the world of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, absolutely. It's not just the 30 second, 60 second pitch, but the story that goes with it. Um, you know, I, I want to get to a point now, if, if I may, now we can just start learning from you. I mean, you've got so much experience and expertise, uh, Steve. So I want to kind of touch on two points. So the, let's start with the organization uh, first rather than the entrepreneur. So I remember a few years ago, I, I read the book Collective Genius uh, by a Harvard professor. Fantastic book. Um, and it kind of, I've got two follow-up questions about that. First of all, what's your take on that book? And then subsequently, what would be your advice for, um, you know, employers wanting to foster innovation and entrepreneurship within their organizations? One of the metaphors that we often use in our work is when we talk about um, the huge project that went on to sequence DNA and, and, and people really struggled and it was, it was stuck, it was stagnant. And the breakthrough came when the teams who were working on solving that riddle began to connect their computers. So rather than having these individual computers, by connecting them, that created this supercomputer, a huge amount of computing power that was then able to actually sequence DNA. And now, quite literally, you could, you know, you could go online and get your DNA sequenced for a, you know, for, for a few bucks in the States, I'm sure. So the, the, the power of connection the power of community and the power of harnessing a range of collective intelligences across the organization is not in any doubt in my view. So Collective Genius I think is well titled, it's well named and it's largely and, and it's, it's very very aligned with the work that we do in the lens. What we are saying to organizations are there is a huge collective genius across your organization. Let us help you to harness that collective genius and to put it to work because at the moment, you're probably not making the most of it. Nice. So on that note, um, I, I remember, again, this is during my studies at Harvard School of Public Health, and we, we had uh, teachers from both the business school and School of Public Health and medical school too, coming to talk to us about leadership skills and developing those. And there was often a debate whether you can actually teach that or whether you have it as a, you know, innate skill and mindset. And, and I'm curious, you know, we know often, and feel free to uh, elaborate on this, we, we often know as entrepreneurs what skills you need and what kind of mindset you need. Is it any different to being an entrepreneur? I'm sure it, it is, but what makes a good entrepreneur, I guess? A good entrepreneur, someone who's resilient, somebody who is uh, adventurous, someone who's committed, uh, someone who's got the insight and the willingness to let people influence and shape their ideas. Um, who's open to feedback and to challenge uh, and, and who's willing to push to get things done. That's a good, that's a good entrepreneur. We often 
say, or there's a, there's a common myth, I think, that, that, that's around and people say, well, entrepreneurs are the ones who take all the risks. I'm not sure that's ever actually the case. I think most entrepreneurs will take calculated risks. Very few of them actually have their house on the line and are about to become homeless. Um, you know, they're taking calculated measured risks. And it's often believed that entrepreneurs don't take risks. But entrepreneurs are taking risks on a reputational basis by stepping up and stepping out of line and actually saying, why don't we do it this way? Wouldn't it be better if we did this? How might we improve how we deliver this? Actually, by working against the status quo, that takes considerable courage sometimes, uh, and sometimes it in involves risk. Um, we see our entrepreneurs stepping forward and taking personal responsibility and accountability for their ideas and being measured by their peers, that's, that's risk. I'm curious, Steve, do you have any like examples, either ones that you've worked with or ones you've heard about of uh, you know, good best practice in terms of entrepreneurship uh, in the health sector? Um, we've worked with organisations who are connected to the health sector, so um, we've not worked directly in the NHS yet. Um, we were almost about to last year, um, uh, but in, in March last year, clearly the, the pandemic took hold and, and things were, were, were put on, uh, on, on edge, uh, on, on ice rather. Um, but I would expect us to be working in the NHS at some point uh, soon. Um, I can give you a fantastic example of a woman called Kate. Kate is a, a paediatric palliative care pharmacist who works for children's hospices across Scotland. And children's hospices across Scotland were moving their model from two geographically specific hospice-based provisions to a more broad community outreach and able to reach many, many more children across Scotland. And Kate developed an idea which used a model from the adult world of palliative care pharmacists in the community and said, why don't we have a similar network for children? Why don't we have a similar network of paediatric palliative care pharmacists for children across Scotland? She developed that idea. That idea then gained uh, traction. It gained support from the chief uh, pharmaceutical, uh, um, uh, pharmaceutical officer in, in Scotland, uh, and it's now been, been rolled out across Scotland. So I think we can see examples that are health related, um, but I don't have a direct example sure. from, from the health service. But if you went and asked people in the NHS right now, you went to any health centre, you went into any hospital and you spoke to porters, to junior doctors, to nurses, uh, to people close to patients and said, have you got ideas to make things better for patients? Tons of ideas. Absolutely. And, and actually, that's something I value in the NHS. It's actually within your kind of job contract and development, if you like, that um, you're promoted, you're actually pushed into, facilitated into actually doing this kind of uh, service improvement work. And it's not called entrepreneurship, but it can be. There's two examples I've seen, Steve, as well. And I want to kind of empower not just you, but also listeners or, or the audience in general. You know, 90% of our health, the people who know me have heard this time and again, but I, I can't say it enough. 90% of our health is outside the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And so 
I guarantee you've done so much work, Steve, to help the health sector because it's in the homes we live, it's in the funeral poverty, it's in all sorts of education, child, uh, you know, early life, all sorts of aspects. It's in the food we eat and so on. So any work that you do in these social wider determinants of health, as well as the environmental determinants of health, it's, it's enough. It's more than 90% of what determines our health. And when it's too late, that's when we get into the healthcare system and we still need it. We need a ton of innovation. And so I'll just share two examples, Steve, if, uh, if I may, just for a moment. Um, so when I was in Cardiff, um, I remember seeing a group that really liked innovation and entrepreneurship. And this is in the health sector. So it's facilitated by um, the university and they essentially got all the players from lawyers, patent attorneys, members of the, the government, local authorities, health sector, university, and so on. And basically they would promote it on a monthly basis. They would have people come up who have either they're within the organizations that are represented there or from without, but they have to be from Wales. And essentially they would come up, pitch, describe a problem, pitch a solution that they have. And it's not so much about supporting them financially as much as it's about supporting them with the networking, the resources, just to help bring their idea to that next step of fruition. Um, so I, I love that. And then one other thing we did pre-COVID, uh, Steve. So when I was working at Public Health Wales, um, this is pre-COVID. Um, I remember seeing we have tons of amazing people there. Honestly, so many um, smart minds and so skilled. And just every day, I can't say this enough. Every day I would have tons of examples of innovative ideas. But it was, as you said earlier, it was just, but only if we had the time or if we had the resources to do it. So I, what, one day what I did is I went to my supervisor who was very welcoming to this concept, again, pre-COVID, and it was essentially, you know, um, can we help bring some of these ideas and shine a light on them and help them grow? And so we, we basically put out a uh, pitch contest, which was supposed to be friendly because not everyone is an extrovert in these yeah. kinds of scenarios. And it was just come with your ideas. And if, even if you don't want to do it in a wide group, just come and talk to us one on one. And we'll see what we can do. And it's amazing. Some of the ideas you, you'll hear, and I'll uh, cut this short, but some of the ideas are apparently so simple, but so yeah. powerful. Yes. You know, like just move yeah. the desk from here to there. And, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm sure you've heard tons of these oh, ideas. Too. Hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. Uh, and I think it's remarkable when people say, um, you know, when we get to our investment day, when people are, are pitching and presenting their idea, and we give people lots of encouragement, lots of lots of support in order to do that. And we've seen people present their ideas in the most fantastic ways. But often people are in the audience saying, why aren't we just doing that already? And that gets to the heart of one of the bigger issues here about, well, why are we not just doing that already, actually? Um, because the ideas are there. That's not the issue. Uh, the, the, the issue is that as organisations, we've decided to, to, to build most of our organisations using a bureaucratic structure. It's a clearly defined and well-known organisational structure. It's got many, many benefits. It gives you stability, it gives you control, it gives you layers of authority, it gives you layers of hierarchy, people know where they are. All of those things are good things in terms of having a stable, predictable organisational performance. But what it's not good at is innovation and change. What it's not good at 
is finding those ideas from those closest to patients and to customers and to people and, and putting them up the line and turning them into action. Yeah. So that's the challenge for uh, about how we equip and enable leaders to, to show through their actions and not just their words that they want to hear divergent thinking, that they want to hear, because sometimes divergent thinking is also seen as troublemakers. Um, so are change makers innovators and progressives or are change makers troublemakers and disruptive and difficult? Um, you know, leaders have a, have a choice about how they see these things. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the things that's really important to us is helping to encourage leaders, because I've not yet met a leader in a senior leadership role who doesn't want to hear those ideas. I really have not. So there's something, you know, fundamental in just our day-to-day -day practice that gets in the way, because yeah. they all want to hear them, no doubt about that. And it's amazing. It's it's um, often people think that it's not not necessarily everyone, but most people think that you only need to go to those who are very well educated academically. I'm talking about or in more senior roles. But actually, um, some of the ideas, many of the ideas that are powerful and effective and actually practical, often come from all walks of life. Um, so that's why you know we invited for this like you know pitch event everyone from the cleaners to the most senior executive to, to come up uh, in front of us and, and talk. So, so I'm now, imagine now you, you are, and you are actually, Steve, speaking to the entrepreneur on the other side of this camera. What advice would you give them if they've got some inkling of wanting to do something innovative where they work? I, I would want to really encourage you, go and do it. Go and do it. And particularly if you've got an idea that's going to improve people's lives, use that passion, use that motivation and that drive to make people's lives better and use that to drive forward your idea. Get a team, um, build other people around you, persuade other people of the value of the importance of your idea and build a network that will support you and find a way because your challenge as an entrepreneur is to get the attention of someone in that bureaucratic structure who's got access to time, to resource, to influence, to something that you need to get your idea into action. Think about how you persuade them, choose your moment, plan it out, and then just go do it. Yeah, have a strategy, know what good looks like, right? And have your vision set and a good strategy forward. And obviously they can come to you, I'm presuming if they want help with with the strategy yeah, and so yeah, on. Absolutely, yeah. come and talk to us, go to our website, um, and the details will, will, will be in the podcast, I'm sure Barry's will Yes, absolutely lensperspectives.org.uk um, but yeah come and talk to us uh, and we can connect you with other entrepreneurs who've been on a similar journey been on a similar path we can give you some top tips and some advice so when when that's thank you for that steve and when would be the most appropriate point where you feel like as an entrepreneur it's time to pivot and do your own thing as an entrepreneur now well that's a great question um if i think about it from my own experience the time for me to pivot was when I was inside a large organization and I realized that in order to make the lens really flourish and really grow, I needed to take that outside of that organization and set it up as a completely new organization. I did so and I set the lens up as a registered charity. So we're a purpose-driven, mission-driven organization where all of our resources is plowed straight back into our mission and our purpose. So we're not a company with, with shareholders. So 
it was an entrepreneurial step out of a big organization with 450 people that the lens would only have ever been a tiny, tiny part of and unable to grow. So I decided to take it out of there and to transplant it um, and, and to grow it as a separate organization. I guess it depends on what your outcome is, what's your motivation. Um, uh, do I want to be an entrepreneur that continues to do things within the boundaries of a large organization? That brings lots of benefits. It brings some disadvantages. Can the idea that I've got grow sufficiently within this big organization to have the impact that I want? Or do I feel bold enough and are the outcomes valuable enough that I should actually take it and spin out as a new organization? I, yeah. I think each, each situation will vary, but I think I focus on what are the outcomes that I want for my idea? What are the outcomes that I want for me? And where do I best perform? And that's really important. I mean, time and again, when I speak to entrepreneurs, to startups, you know, they always talk about one of the major reasons for their solution not getting adopted or working well and not succeeding. And it's that product or lack of product market fit. But one thing that I try and promote, and this is a segue to my um, final question, Steve, it's basically, it's not just product market fit. And you mentioned it just now. It's also product or solution entrepreneur fit, making sure that what you do, your goal, what your business model is, is aligned with the kind of life that you want to lead to. And I, I think I heard that from you right at the beginning of what made you pivot and launch the lens as well. Um, but it's, it's critical. And often I see many entrepreneurs, including health professionals, actually early in their careers when they decide to even go to university and what kind of specialty to take. And entrepreneurs too, in, in terms of, trying to please and gain financial uh, you know uh, things from investors and trying to please them and they lose track very quickly they lose track they go down a rabbit hole trying to grow this unicorn and often neglect their own happiness well-being so my final question to you uh, Steve is along this journey either for yourself or maybe um, stories that you've heard have you come across any strategies for looking after number one when it comes to being a busy intro or entrepreneur? It's a fabulous question and a really tough question to, to answer. Um, I think that like many um, entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs, um, I have been guilty in the past of working too long, working too hard uh, and convincing myself that this is the only way to do it. So if you look back over the last year, there's a great example. Um, uh, I would have told you a year ago that the only way that I could do my job was working 50 to 60 hours a week, traveling a lot across Scotland, uh, spending lots of time away from home overnights. Uh, and, and in one fell sweep over the last year, that significantly changed. Yeah. So the amount of travel that we do, the ability to, uh, to reach people digitally has significantly changed uh, the way in which we do things. So at a stroke, then work is more sustainable, I would argue, uh, now. So, but your question is strategies. Um, and, I, and I, think it's a, I think it's a great question. And I think it's too easy for us, particularly if, we've driven, if we're driven by a purpose uh, or sometimes by our own ego um, to drive ourselves too hard. And I know that I've done that in the past. Um, will I do that again in the future? Probably, because it's, it's part of my makeup. Entrepreneurs are driven. So, um, but I think, I think you need to remember, I need to remember, and we need to remember um, that our health is the most important thing that we have. 
and you don't know that until it's not there and sometimes that's going to be too late. So health, physical, mental and emotional health is the most important thing that we have. If we don't have that, we're unable to do the work that we want to do and we're unable to achieve the mission and the purpose that we want to achieve. Finding time for ourselves, finding whether that's, you know, going and climbing a mountain in a blizzard in the winter, uh, whether that's, you know, watching a movie with friends, whether that's, whatever that might be, is really important. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, yeah, how do, I, how do I summarize that? I focus on oneself first. What's the cliche? Put your own mask on before you put someone else's. <laughs> exactly. So how do you look after yourself? How do you make sure that your mask is on in order that you're well enough, healthy enough, and that your batteries are replenished enough that you can give joy and love and goodwill to others? Uh, that's probably the most important thing.